everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. And if you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and hey, he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, Forrest. And as you know, I'm really looking forward to our guest. Yes, we did a good five to ten minutes before we started recording. We were having a great time. And today we are joined by a wonderful author, Zen teacher, Jungian psychotherapist, so we're really checking all of the boxes here, and the co-founder of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, Koshin Paley Ellison. So Sensei Koshin began his formal Zen training in 1987, and he's a recognized Soto Zen teacher. And he also completed six years of training at the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association. And before we get started, I do want to just give a shout out and say that New York Zen Center's approaches to thoughtful and compassionate care have touched the lives of many, many people in profound ways. And his most recent book is Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion. So Sensei Koshin, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's such a joy to be with you. As I was sharing with you both, I'm just a, kind of a fanboy of the two of you and just the love that you two share. And I feel like actually that's so much about what is needed in this world, is connection and love. Oh, thank you. Delighted to be here. As a way of getting into my question I'd like to ask you, I first want to say that I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to be with someone who has your depth of practice, including both in serious contemplative training, serious Buddhist training, and also the background in what I consider to be, or who I consider to be the greatest psychologist ever, Carl Jung. And one of the things I want to say, kind of related to Forrest, is to tell a story about him, which is that when he was a teenager, somewhere around 14 or 15, I forget how old Forrest, maybe 16, he went off to a weekend meditation retreat at Abhayagiri Monastery, which is situated in the Theravadan tradition, mainly coming through Southeast Asia. Thai forest tradition, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Thai forest tradition, grounded in sort of early Buddhism, the early teachings or the early written record of the teachings of the Buddha. Eventually, Forrest finally did get home, and I asked him, so, Forrest, what was it like? And Forrest has a background in sports and ESPN. He's a major fan of that kind of stuff. He sort of paused, looked off into space, and then said, you know, Dad, those Ajans have game. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> it was so great. And Just absolutely he, tossing me under the bus here, Dad. <laughs> he got it. And in his context, that was profoundly respectful. And so I want to tell you that I am really happy to be with someone like you who has oh, game as well. So as a way of introduction to you and your work, I'd like to start with a line from the first paragraph of your new book, Untangled, that just pierced my own heart. The line is, all the time I work with dying people, and only a few of them know they are dying. And you have, of course, an enormous background in hospice care and contemplative end-of-life care. It's a beautiful line. Would you mind unpacking it? Would you mind disentangling it a little bit for us here? Yeah, well... As someone who grew up with lots of death and stories of death, I 
I know what it is to live close to the edge and being bullied in such a way that you actually felt that there was a very good chance you could be killed Mm. and being in a home where sometimes you were safe and sometimes you were not. Mm. So both inside and outside, I know very early on, I understood the visceralness that this a teacher I know calls it a meat puppet, you know, this body does not last. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, later in my teenage years to my step-grandmother live with us and just watching her body and in her dying process and then watching my two uncles, you know, our dear friends who got what was called at that time gay cancer before mm. HIV AIDS was even named, watching them die from these hilarious, lively Jerry and Michael were like the most hysterical, funny and smart and wise and loving people and just watching their bodies die. So maybe had this like deep appreciation for living, knowing that any moment the conditions can change. And so I've had the privilege to be with so many people when they've been in their dying. And oftentimes those are the few people that I know who are dying and know that they're dying. And where most of us think, oh yeah, yeah, like that'll happen. Yeah, like, yeah, no, I know, I know. But I think we don't know because we, we have such a distance from that reality. And for at least 40,000 years, we as human beings have been caring for the dying. And it's been in our homes. And we have, for the last probably 5,000 years, have kind of started to move it outside of our homes and more and more so and more quickly now. So that most of us are, you know, all of us are dying. But just few of us know that we're dying. And to me, the knowing that you're dying does not have to mean an actual terminal diagnosis, but actually all of us have one, which is called birth, you know, which is inextricably linked with like, it comes with a clear package. You know? mm, yeah. And so I just remember also this incredible woman that I also wrote about, Rose Tisnato, who was Chodo, who's my husband, this gorgeous human being. And he and I had the privilege of just being with her. And she was, you know, a real New Yorker and had also, for part of her life, had really hidden and put a lot of energy into hiding. And then later in her life, she started to get very exuberant and allowing her eccentric self to come out. And I just remember her talking to us about, geez, you know, like it's so amazing how long I waited to live. Mm. And I was so afraid. I was so like hunched over and hiding and learning just to celebrate that we're alive. And so she said, you know, just 
when I asked her, what's the message you would like to give to people? What is your legacy? She says, don't hold back. So like Mm -hmm. that to me, like to really appreciate that we're dying is also to appreciate that we're living Mm -hmm. and not to hold back from living and from feeling the light that's in this room while I'm talking to you two. And it's like such an amazing opportunity. Mm. And we keep waiting for like the opportunity. And that causes so much sorrow. What a beautiful teaching there. And so there's the benefit, in effect, for people to actually realize that they are dying while living. I believe Suzuki Roshi said something on the order of living is like taking a voyage in a boat that you know will sink, (laughs) something like that. And so there's the benefit for knowing that your boat will eventually sink, okay? Also, I'm quite curious, even to bring it real right here, right now, how does it affect you to know that the people you are with are dying? Like, how does it affect you now to know, for example, and to let it land inside you that I am dying, that Forrest is dying? Well, first of all, it makes me want to go like, oh, you hold your face. (laughs) (laughs) Look at your face, Forrest. Look at your sweet face and your sweet face. It really is like that for me. Like, it's it's so amazing. Mm. And actually... You know, I've been with Choda for 22 years and like I haven't yet to leave the house in the morning without holding his face. And I always hold his face and just like really take a look. Because one of the things that is an amazing opportunity is I worked in an emergency department for many years and story after story of people coming in, enormous changes at the last minute that brought them into the emergency room and so much regret of how they left the house in the morning. Mm. So much regret. Why didn't I tell them I loved them? Why I didn't even, you know, say goodbye. I just left. So it's these ordinary moments so that it makes me really appreciate when you're looking at someone And I was just thinking about like the cashier at the coffee shop I was just in before being with you. And this amazing woman was at the cashier and she had this beautiful little girl necklace. And I was like, who's the little girl? She's like, oh, it's, she's like, no one's ever asked me that. She's like, that's my daughter when she was born. Oh, now she's big and tall and doesn't really need me anymore, but I want to hold her so close. She doesn't need me in the same way anymore. But this is how I hold my love for her. And to me, it makes life so exquisitely beautiful. So there's an an immediacy that can be available for people when they start to really internalize that, like, I am in a dying body. Certainly for me, it brings me into a very immediate contact with, like, where I am right now, what I'm doing, what do I want from my life, all of these different things. But for people to be able to access that, for a lot of them, when they first start to engage these questions, there can be a lot of fear, there can be a lot of regret, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a storm of difficult emotions can come up for people. And very popular. 
Yeah, through your through your teaching practice and through your work with people toward the end of their life. I'm sure you've seen a lot of that. What do you think starts to help people be able to ride that wave? <sighs> you know, well, just first of all, to appreciate the depth of how much fear most of us hold. You know, I always watch our cats. We have these two hilarious cats, the Maine Coon cats, and they're very big cats. And so they get so skittish about things. They hear a sound, like, hmm. You know, they, they hear a noise, <laughs> they, you know, anything. And it's just how we are as beings. And you can watch insects do that, cockroaches do that. You know, like, I feel like that there's something so beautiful realizing, like, oh, there's something about being alive that contracts from pain and discomfort. Aversion is a real thing, and aversion is just this very, very alive thing beyond even our species, which I think is really helpful. It's like this is what connects us to living beings. And for me, that is the beginning of appreciation just to realize, all oh, right, we're a living being that tends to go like that. And that's what living beings tend to do. But we have this opportunity and as many of the Buddhist teachings talk about is that being human is this incredible opportunity because we can think about it in a particular way. We can reflect, we can contemplate. And so we can feel fear and then even begin to notice, oh, I'm afraid and I'm feeling fear. And then we make a sentence of, I am afraid. Life is scary. We, we tend to make these what I like to call bad prophecies on our life. It's almost like we create curses on our life that we, instead of just feeling like, ooh, that was scary, as opposed to, I felt fear, huh? Or I felt awkward, or I felt uncomfortable, I felt nervous, I felt anxious. And I think as a, my sense as a mutual friend, our friend Judd, talks about is like, how do you just kind of come back to also curiosity? And so how do you find your, to me, the meditation posture itself, you know, feeling the groundedness, feeling your sit bones, feeling your hara, which is your lower belly soft, finding the uprightness of your spine, opening your shoulders just a tiny bit, so that attitude of ground and softness and uprightness and openness is a beautiful way to meet what scares me, what makes me feel anxious. I feel awkward because then I can say, well, I feel really awkward and fine. I feel really afraid and huh, a nice room. <laughs> you know, that... If we can ground and soften and open and find our own kind of values and ethics, which for me is that uprightness, just return to that. There's so many possibilities. Mm. You know, the expression in Zen is Soshin, which is beginner's mind, you know, the fresh mind. And so I think it's just so important. Like that is available when we're not reacting, but we can actually bring the reaction into that freshness through the ground, 
through the softness. Mm. And I find it like that's a source of joy. You use the word tangled or untangled. In a sense, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about the habitual, to some extent grounded in our own biology, tangles of the mind that become the new normal. And we forget our fundamental condition of spaciousness, love, and freedom. And your book is a very beautiful and very practical exploration of how to untangle ourselves, which to me is particularly timely because in a variety of ways at even the societal level, we can just see so many people getting very tangled in identification with certain views and also very caught in reactive, vicious cycles of entanglement with others whose views they oppose. I'll just maybe finish by the comment that in the earliest surviving written records, what the Buddha taught, you know, that emerged, as you well know, around 23 centuries ago, a couple of years, a couple of centuries after he died, he talks about disentangling. And that word is used in the original teachings. And so I have a particular resonance with this theme in your beautiful book. Well, you're very kind. And I think, you know, I just remember going to a retreat when I was 18 and it was Jack Cornfield actually telling the story. And I just, what, how I remembered that teaching was that the whole world is tangled in a tangle. Who will untangle this tangle? And I feel like it's such a powerful teaching. And I remember as a kid who was very connected to my identity as a victim of many terrible things, which was also true, you know, I was the victim of those things, but I realized that I had tangled it up and I didn't even know really who I was because I was so tied to like, almost like a Macy's Day, weird kind of dark side, Macy's Day float kind of careening through the world, like head first, like I'm a victim, I'm scared, I'm a lone wolf. I'm, And somehow hearing that, teaching of untangling brought me back to wait a second here. There's another possibility. And how amazing that this is not a contemporary issue, <laughs> which is one of the reasons why I love tradition and lineage so much, because it's always reminding me, ah, this is not about iPhones or social media. This is about how we are in the world. And it also brings me back to a sense of responsibility. And around that time is when I heard this other story that continues to teach me, which is about this incredible, there's a, in a Zen monastery, there's usually a cook. And the cook is supposed to be like the most senior student or senior teacher often because they're taking care of and nourishing the whole community. It's a big job. And it's thought to be a very advanced practice. And so beautiful, but they were a little late for lunch and the Zen meals are very formal and very beautiful. And there's the certain monks serve each other in a very beautiful ritualistic way as a practice. And 
they forgot the soup. And so he runs out into the garden and with a scythe and cuts a bunch of vegetables and throws it in a pot and and they get the soup ready and it goes out into the monk's hall in this beautiful way. And the abbot of the temple is at the head and he lifts, puts his spoon in the soup bowl and there's a snake head there. And of course they're vegetarian and there's a snake head on the spoon and he just motions to the cook to come. And so the cook comes, the Tenzo comes and they bow and he takes the snake head, pops it in his mouth and crunch, 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 swallows it and then bows and leaves and it's done. And for me, it is like this incredible vision of what's possible to say, this is real. Someone else saying, yes, I did that. Mm. I take responsibility, crunch, crunch, like, oh, it doesn't feel good. And it's okay. And it's done. It's such a different vision of how we tend to over-personalize and then shame ourselves for our tangled up moments. And so to me, it's like this movement into what's possible, which is like just a sense of healthy embarrassment and a kind of a sense of humor about, my goodness, I can take responsibility for that. I did it. I have to eat it. Thank you. And we're moving on. And to me, like that's, you know, the whole world is tangled in a tangle. Who's going to untangle the tangles? I can do that. I can untangle my bright corner of the world. I find it very encouraging. You mentioned Judson Brewer, our mutual friend, a wonderful psychiatrist and scholar and contemplative science researcher and Mm -hmm. serious practitioner. We had Judson on the podcast some time ago, and we asked him, essentially, so Judd, knowing everything you know about the three pounds of tofu-like tissue inside the coconut, right, (laughs) the brain, uh, how do you use what you've learned about that extraordinary organ in your own practice? And his answer, I'll never forget, was essentially the balance of contraction and expansion, contraction and spaciousness. And building on what you're saying here, it seems to me that when we are entangled in, we are knotted up, and we literally can feel it in the body, right? The somatic markers in the body that feel knotted up, we ruminate around the same thing that the Buddha, as you know, had this metaphor of a dog chained to a stake, has a little bit of movement, but is still stuck to the stake in terms of the neurotic habits of mind. And that is very contracted and yet always available to us is just widening the view, mm-hmm. feeling the inherent spaciousness and openness of awareness without anything metaphysical or woo-woo although I'm definitely a woo-woo guy, ultimately, as Forrest knows, to his dismay from time to time. Anyway, but just in- I like a little woo in my life, Dad. I just like to dose it out, you know? I'm a dose-dependent woo kind of guy. Okay, you're into the woo, but I'm into the woo-woo. But anyway, uh, right? That's what we're talking about, the simplicity. Just in the moment, there you are. You're caught up in it. You're identified with it. They said that thing, and you're pissed off, or you're hurt, or you're freaked. And in in that moment, can you locate the spaciousness in which that experience is occurring? 
right? Yeah. Can you locate a kind of stability of witnessing that's inherently a step back from the knotted up painful experience you're having? And, and that is so available to us at any moment. And even in the depths of it, I'm, who am I to say this to you? So I apologize for that. But even in the depths of it, we can recognize that there's something beyond individual that is, has an inherent lovingness and benevolence and intactness. No matter how fragmented we may feel, there's an underlying intactness and wholeness that contains it all. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that's so important is to realize it's also so available in such ordinary ways. Exactly. Right? And, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah in, in the everyday. And one of my favorite new teachers in this is this incredible human being that I have the privilege to know. His name's Manny, and he's a porter in the building that we live in. And he's the most exquisite teacher. And the other day, I was walking out of our building, and we live on a really sweet little street, and really very pretty. And someone had opened up all the trash bags you know, somebody was having a situation of some kind and the trash was like all over the street. So much trash. Mm. And I just remember thinking, oh, who's going to deal with that? That's not going to be fun. And I remember that thought coming into my brain. And then I looked a little closer and in the middle of the street, like literally the trash was through the whole street, was Manny. And I was like, how are you, man? He's like, I'm here and I'm at work. <laughs> and I was like, how's it going? He's like, well, there's a lot of work to do. And I said, how are you going to begin? He's like, with this piece. Uh-huh. And he picked up a, a can of soda. And it was just such a beautiful teaching. You know, like, I was like, Manny, you're awesome. And it's like that to untangle and to get into that joy, it's like we, so people are like, oh, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. But we often are forgetting that we can just begin with what's right, literally. I love that he just like reached down and was like this, a Coca-Cola can. That's how we're going to begin. You know, some people are like, my life's a mess. It's so tangled up. I can't do anything. Our habit of that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy and then we could remember manny in the midst of the trash heap how are you gonna do it i'll start with a goat camp you know it's like Mm -hmm. we can start with just what's there it was just it warms my heart and to me it's like this incredible reminder of what's also possible because you were talking about earlier that many people feel afraid or they feel yeah you know, they feel so much. It's like, oh, right. But how could you start with right here? Just for me, when I hear you say that, Koshin, it it gets to a lot of acceptance and like a lot of acceptance practices that are so rooted in the Buddhist tradition broadly. Mm-hmm. This is probably going to come out messy, so maybe you can help me untangle it a little bit here. Where when I think about acceptance practices a lot, I like to think about a, a window of acceptance that people have. Like, what can you accept about the situation that you're currently in? Because so much of suffering 
comes from wanting things to be a different way than the way that they are. And often when you hear people talk about acceptance practices, a natural rebuttal that comes along is like, well, but I don't want them to keep on being this way. And of course, like that's the core of the knot for a lot of people. As somebody who is so deeply involved in these issues and with this practice, I'm wondering how you talk with people about that. Yes. Well, such a deep question, right? And mm. I feel like that there is not an answer. And yeah. I always feel like, let me tell you a story. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Because I feel like in many ways, like the way that we respond is through those encounters and not in the idea of it. And Yeah, totally. I was just sharing this recently with someone came to see me and I, during this time, there are more and more teenagers dying by suicide. And so it's a huge heartbreak in our world. And I just knew that this mother was coming to see me because her child had died by suicide. And, and so for me, it's just about, okay, let's see what that, what comes. And so we go into the room to here at the Zen center and we sat down and we just looked at each other and she was quite well appointed and put together. And I said, just tell me. And she began to howl. Hmm. And she began to beat her chest and the sobbing. And I just, during this whole time, you know, there were tissues next to her, available to her, but didn't have any impulse to clean it up. And she howled and beat her chest and sobbed like I feel that beings have sobbed for tens of thousands of years. And I just I'm kept feeling her in this like lineage of mothers, lineage of parents who had lost. And just being really present with her and really just loving her. This person I don't even, you could say I didn't know her. And yet I, of course I knew her in this way. And she went on for about 20 minutes, this ritual really. It was so moving. Mm. You know, really touches me. And in a certain moment, she just kind of slumped over. And then she looked up and she said, thank you so much. No one has been with me in that way. Everyone is telling me, oh, it's going to be better. Or how are you doing? How are you doing? Don't worry. Don't worry. It'll be better. It'll get better. She's like, I don't need to hear any of that bullshit. I just need to be messy. This is messy. And to me, like that was such a powerful teaching about untangling. That sometimes we actually, which I hadn't really, which I don't know if I ever thought about it in this way until right now. But like, I think that sometimes like the way that when we want to rush in, to be helpful, to be nice, to be compassionate, we actually keep someone tangled up. And so somewhat, sometimes I think 
the most generous thing to do is just to hold people and to be curious with them and to be loving towards them and to ask like, how can I help? It's like that beautiful Ram Dass and Paul Gorman book, which is still gorgeous. How can I help? It's like that instead of like rushing in, like I'm here to help you. How do we actually see who's in front of us? You need a lot of capacity to tolerate uh, what comes up in yourself when you're the one who's sobbing or to tolerate what comes up when you're the one who is with someone who is sobbing. And I guess that in part goes to what you said earlier, just simply the regular practice of sitting, literally and metaphorically, soft in the front, firm in the back, as Roshi Joan talks about, that helps us tolerate it. And I wonder, are there other things that enable you to sustain that quality of presence as someone who's been present with just the worst, both in your childhood, your own worst, and, and the worst you've been with in your work and end-of-life care, emergency room services, and so on? A couple things come to mind. One is, you know, when I was the most desperate, I actually ended up going to a karate school when I was about 11, because I really wanted to find a teacher like they did in Karate Kid. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi, I mean, if you can nail a fly with chopsticks, you got game, right? Exactly. You got it going on. <laughs> I really felt like I needed to find a teacher. Hmm. I needed to find a place. And so so I think that, that, first of all, that's a really important thing is if we are in our life and just feeling tangled up and feeling a little depleted, we need other people and we need to take this body and move it to a place where there's other people. And now we live in a time where you could join communities on Zoom even. You can actually still do that. You can engage, you can participate. But I went to this place and really in a moment of absolute desperation, and it was this very strange karate school. <laughs> it was like a walking distance from our house. I lived in the suburbs in upstate New York and in the basement of the drugstore at the strip mall. And the teacher was amazing. You know, it was very, smelled really bad. And there was like this fake wood floor. And we would sit in Seiza where your legs are underneath yourself and your but, you know, normally these days we sit meditation, but we're in like kind of a bougie situation with some cushions and a yoga mat and some music or something. And this was smelly, seemed a little unsafe even. And, and yet he would have a sit and he would walk around us as we were sweating because it was so painful. And I was like this little kid, 11 years old. And he'd walk around us very slowly and methodically and be like, you'll never be free until you can be still with your pain. And that teaching continues to inform me in such deep ways. Because I realized in many ways also I wouldn't articulate it then, but now I understand that it was actually the beginning of compassion for me for the people who are even harming me. Because I realized, oh, they don't know how to be still with their pain. 
And I also was part of the medicine of that time was also being with these other people who were also learning how to be still with our pain. That there was something about the group. It was like this, it felt like superhero training. You know, it was like, I mean, that's what I really kind of thought in my 11 year old brain. I was like, I'm learning freaking superpowers, man. You know? <laughs> and in a way it was, it was like a, an amazing power to learn how to do that in community. And so for me, that, that continues to be what nourishes me to this day. You know, I have a beautiful peer group of Zen teachers that I meet with every month, and we really just get pretty real and raw with each other and very good friends and really good relationships. I'm an amazing Jungian analyst that I've been working with for a long, long time. And, you know, just like it's delicious to have many circles of support. You just referred there to working with a, a Jungian analyst. And for somebody who has such a varied background as as you do, I'm I'm very curious. How does your or how did maybe your your training as a as a psychoanalyst or your Jungian training impact your contemplative practice or what you got out of the Zendo or through that whole process? Like how did the two work together? Well, one is for me, they're designed for different things. Yeah. And they're beautifully designed for different things, you know, and they are like awesome pairing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've met many amazing young analysts who are just basically in their heads, you know, like it doesn't, you could stay just very cerebral. For me, meditation practice is really a somatic practice and the ritual is a somatic way of deeply rooting yourself in the midst of the world. And over time, the surprises of the layers of madness become very clear. (laughs) (laughs) And you get to see a lot of things. And to me, the subtleness of the beauty and the subtleness of our delusions are amazing to watch. And to me, the acuity of attention, just like, mm, like now there's like the flickering of, you know, you can feeling the thoughts beginning to arise. And that's an amazing adventure. To me, meditation is an amazing adventure of like really acutely and lovingly and rigorously Mm, meeting it, meeting it, meeting it. And then Jungian work and any good psychology work for me is a way of, is also an adventure of meeting our conditioning and meeting that which actually stops what I now kind of think of as stopping the flow of actually allowing ourselves to be in the flow of what I call true pleasure like to be nourished and alive in the world and all of the hooks and the weird things that just keep surfacing. And I I really have deep appreciation for, you know, the teaching of no arrival. So I have no fantasy like, oh, I've done it for X amount of years. I'm done. You know, I remember I was training in koans for, which is a, quite rigorous 
training for 18 years. And I remember feeling sorrowful at the end of the 18 years. I finished the last koan and done with my koan training. And I wept because I realized there was a little part of me throughout the whole thing that was like, oh, I want to finish my koan training. I want to finish mm-hmm. then, then I'll be a person who finished my koan training. And I realized like, wow, that was so not the point. And so I just felt a lot of tenderness. So I feel like those two are just like, if you stay alive, if you've got game, Forrest, <laughs> you just like, you stay in the game and like to have partners to work with our psyche who are imaginative and rigorous is a thrill. It's amazing. It feels like one of the greatest privileges in my life. And to have a Sangha community and teachers to keep learning. And to, the, to me, the, where they are similar maybe is like that verticality. You know, that Jung was very interested in those axes. And it's like we spend most of our life in a kind of horizontal nature. and that, But we can really open up this channel. What do you call the transcendent function? You know, just like that kind of, and yet it keeps getting clogged. And there's a very beautiful poem from the Blue Cliff record where it says, you know, you just have to reach down into the spring and grab the clod of earth and the spring will gurgle forth. Hmm. And I feel like in many ways, maybe that's where they're similar to. In your own practice, Hmm. and integration really of these two great streams, Zen training and Jungian training. Were there some things that were took a long time for you to untangle? Maybe you're still working on it. And kind of related to that, were there some key inner streams that have been really helpful for you mm-hmm. to tune into? I can say that for me, the, those two together have been really helpful. And you you know the metaphor, of course, of practices like a cart with two wheels. There's developmental change, untangling, let's say, progressively. And then there's also the recognition of underlying wholeness and purity and true nature along the way, which, let's say, could be getting in touch with the wellsprings that have always already been there and yet have not been fully recognized. So in a sense, I'm kind of asking you a twofold question, you know, untangling on the one hand that you're still engaged with maybe, mm-hmm. and key streams, wellsprings that have been really helpful for you to open up to. Yeah. I remember about 12 years into my practice, you know, I was quite arrogant. <laughs> so embarrassing. Like I was really, like I looked really good. You know, I had ordained and, you know, I knew the forms kind of really on point. I was totally got game in that whole thing of, you know, leading in the Sangha and, you know, a little kind of using it to cover over something hard. I was bypassing because I really was, what I saw was that I was, I just still remember, I was on a session, which is a traditional Zen retreat. 
And it was literally just like we meditate with our eyes down in Sazen and just looking at the the light on the floor in front of me. And I just remember thinking, Koshin, you're such an ass. <laughs> but it was like kind of like a brother would say, <laughs> you know, a good brother. And it really was because I, I was making it really all about me. Mm. I was making it was about my practice, how I looked, how I was doing. I really had kind of pushed even the Sangha away, even though I was, it would appear that I was integral and connected to everybody. But I, there was this layer that I completely wasn't because to belong to a group was, from my history, was terrifying. You know, like belonging was not something that was literally safe. And so I saw some, and you know, I've been doing a lot of work of investigation at that point, but I just like really, somehow I just like, it just turned the jewel a little bit. And kind of, I still remember like calling myself an ass in that moment, like, yes, that's so refreshing. You know, like I, I have been doing that and I can put it down. Something just shifted in that moment that I didn't need to do that anymore. And even though I wasn't supposed to look around, I kind of gazed around. And I remember like, this is a good place. This is good. And there's something about that that was also maybe the other wheel of actually appreciating what I had worked very hard to cultivate that I was all around me were good spiritual friends. And I was in the midst of a life that was actually had changed a great deal and it healed a great deal and actually mostly felt wonderful. But that kind of, you know, I think about it as like this cage, the size of our body, you know, that we, keep ourselves in that I kept myself in and learning how to kind of somehow like undoing that lock. And then you just, you're just there. And so for me, it was very, it felt that close and that intimate. And to me, that subtle pivot is still part of my practice. Mm. Like looking at how we can kind of, how I can kind of, move away and come back, move away and come back. But I feel like in some ways, the, my practice edge, if you can say it, these days is really just that to really take care of every inch, to take care of every inch. Like what Manny showed me the other day, like I, I saw in my mind, like, oh, like who's going to deal with that? Like I, I still saw like, oh, there's a little, interesting area and i'm not interested in perfection but i'm just interested in like what is that like what did where did that thought come from and what am i how can i work with cultivation in a different way so that i can actually show up in a different way so that i can full and still fully take in manny's beauty your beauty your beauty I think so many people just feel in doubt of and out of touch with 
their underlying inner goodness and capabilities and wellspring of love inside that's there. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing when someone like you, Koshin, comes along and can recognize those inner gurglings in other people because it's in part to that recognition that we can get in touch with them ourselves. It's, you know, it's an extraordinary thing to be alive. Yeah, it's amazing that we're here at all, right? Or that anything <laughs> is here at all. You know, and that's one way I come to terms myself with my own dying. It's just the extraordinary gift, which has had a lot of pain in it. I've been fortunate in some ways, including in uh, my companion in this life forest. And still, right, it's been hard in a lot of ways. And still, every day is like a birthday party, right? I just had my 70th birthday party, in fact, but every day is a birthday party, oh, every day, you know, we get, yeah, we get, to, we get to be here, you know, and that's quite something. So yeah, and then I'll come to my last day. And I don't think I'm gonna wanna go because I'm very curious and there's, you know, I enjoy this, this life and its mysteries and all, but it's in the context of all those previous birthday parties, thousands and thousands of gifts. It's in the context of all that that I'll come to my last party. And I will, I'll want another one, but it'll make it a lot easier to appreciate how many beautiful parties I've been gifted extraordinarily, even with their pains, all along the way. You know, it just reminds me of when Shinru Suzuki was dying of cancer and he was in a lot of pain. And I just remember this incredible story where, you know, one of his students came to see him as he was dying in the hospital. He said, how can I help you? And she said, oh, I'm here to see how a great Zen master dies. And she goes, well, he says, well, it might be like this. Ah! <laughs> and he was like howling in pain. And she ran out of the room. But there's something so wonderful about that story, too. Oh, yeah. Like, you know that, yeah. yeah, you could be a great Zen master and you might be in a lot of pain. And it could be like that. So it's like, how do we free ourselves so that we can actually live instead of some idea of living, you know? I love that story. It's a fantastic story. And I also feel like we could probably just keep on doing this for <laughs> at least several more hours, but we do need to draw an arbitrary stopping point. And I think that that story is a fantastic place to do it at. So, Koshin, thank you so much for doing this with us today. It's just been like a total pleasure to be with you. I feel like I got a lot out of it personally. And yeah, just like thank you for all the work you're doing in the world as well. It's an honor and a delight to be with you both. Today we had a wonderful time speaking with Koshin Paley Ellison. He is a fantastic Zen teacher, the co-founder of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, and the author of the new book, Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion. Koshin is also just an absolutely lovely person, which I am sure came through in the conversation. He is such a nice guy to be with. He has such a lovely and warm and nurturing presence. And there was just something about the way that he, I don't even know quite the right language for it, the way that he saw the good in other people. He was just so kind to, to Rick and to me, but then to also all of the other 
characters that appeared in the various stories that he told. And there was something about that that really helped me get into better contact with not only my own lovable aspects, but the lovable aspects of other people. And I think in a lot of ways, that was almost the the primary teaching that he was delivering throughout our conversation, just through his nature, how this is a, a special life, even in the midst of its challenges, and the ability and opportunity that we all have to find that which is lovable in others. And we began today's conversation by talking about his work in contemplative care, where my dad asked a question about a line that appears very early on in his book and returns throughout it as a, as a kind of theme. And the line is, all the time I work with dying people, and only a few of them know that they are dying. And it's just a beautiful commentary on the fact that we are all living in bodies that are dying all the time, and there are a lot of understandable forces in our psychology, in our culture, in our nature as fleshy creatures moving through the world that does not want to come into contact with the truth and the immediacy of that fact. But seeing that as the truth of things really can present a remarkable opportunity for us to drop into the present moment in a really powerful way and go, wow, not only what do I want from this life, like that's certainly a question that could come out of it, but really just an appreciation for the moment that you have as it is existing for you right now. And this took me to a question about the other side of that immediacy for a lot of people, which is pain and fear and not wanting to come into contact with the reality of death and dying. And what is it that can support people in, in dealing with that fear? And many of Koshin's answers to questions that we asked during the course of the conversation came in the form of stories. And to give an example, I asked a question during the conversation about acceptance. What can help people find that balance between accepting things as they are without adding the bonus pain that often comes into our experiences when we push back against the way that things truly are because we don't want them to be that way? while also having the space that allows us to change them in positive ways without being attached to that change, right? It can be kind of a thorny knot for people, particularly when people are going through the kinds of extremely painful experiences that Koshin often holds space for. And he told this beautiful story of a parent coming in to be with him whose child had recently passed away. And the suffering that she processed in that moment and how he was able to just be with her without needing her to be anything other than what she was or without needing her to have an experience other than the experience that she was having. And initially, there was a part of me that had a hard time kind of seeing how that answered the question. And his answer really allowed me to look at that part and think about it and go, oh, what happened here is that he took me out of my cognitive tangle that I had gotten into around this question and took it into a really beautiful and practical example of this is what being with something actually looks like. This is what real acceptance actually looks like in the moment of practice between two people. It's not a theoretical thing. It's a very practical thing. It's lived in real life. So what does that really look like? And then he just gave an example of it as the teacher. And I think that more than anything else, that's really what I'm going to take from this conversation. The ways in which he was almost able to 
bypass my cognitive bypassing and cut through some of the, for lack of a better word, some of the tangles that people tend to wrap themselves up in through the use of these very incisive and very clear examples of what fully available living can look like practically in our lives. Again, Koshin's wonderful book is Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion. I think that it is a wonderful resource for anyone, and I would particularly recommend it for anyone who maybe you've been listening to a podcast like ours for a while or other podcasts that sometimes traffic in Buddhism, but you don't necessarily have a personal practice yourself and you've been looking for a good entry point. I think that this is a phenomenal book because it is so incisive and so accessible. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while, we'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to subscribe to it on the platform of your choice. Maybe leave a rating and a positive review. That really helps us out. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show, and you'll also get access to a bunch of bonuses. These are things like ad-free versions of our episodes, transcripts of the episodes, and then these deep dives into the research and planning that go into each episode we do, where I unpack some of the themes that we talk about. That's it for today. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.